Good morning. Our first reading is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9, which is on page 797 in the Bibles we provide. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The word of our Lord. Our second reading is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, which is on page 991 in the Bibles we provide. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson is taken from John chapter 18, and it's a a long uh, reading. It begins at verse 28 and goes to verse 16 of chapter 19. Uh, But we see here the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And uh, though this would have happened Good Friday because we don't have a Good Friday service, I didn't want us to move into Easter without listening to these verses and seeking to understand what John tells us uh, about Jesus' own response to the questions put to him. So we begin with John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. I want to say one thing here linguistically because it should for us particularly following the Holocaust, but following too much church history. It should be jarring to us to hear John saying the Jews in a critical way. And it's important to remember that John was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were all Jewish. Uh, Whenever John uses in his gospel the, the words the Jews, He's not talking about the Jewish nation. He's talking that that was his phrase for the Jewish religious leaders, particularly the ones in power, the Sadducees, who were the priestly class and were in collusion with Rome. Hear that as we read this. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he'd said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to, him, said to them, take, them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die, because he's made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard that statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought out Jesus and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Peter, uh, Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The gospel of Christ. We say thanks be to God. It's, it's liturgically appropriate. We know for this he came into the world, but it's hard to read a text like that and give thanks for it unless we are thinking of its result. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday we remember as Palm Sunday, he was the only one who really realized what was coming. All the way up to the road to Jerusalem, as we've seen over and again in the Gospels, he warned his disciples. He would say to them, when the Son of Man gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be delivered over to his enemies and they're going to crucify him but he's going to rise on the third day. And every time he said it, we read that they were filled with sadness or with consternation, with confusion, and refused to receive his word, immediately beginning to argue again over which of them would be greatest 
when he established his kingdom. In other words, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And they continued to insist in their own minds and their own conversations that he was going to Jerusalem to do what they had followed him to see him do, and that is overthrow Rome and reestablish David's throne as their kind of king, their kind of Messiah that they were looking for. And so they were still arguing, I'm sure, and believing that it was all about to come true as people came out and greeted him in the manner that the prophets had said the king would be greeted as he rode into Jerusalem. For the rest of the people in Jerusalem that Passover season, it was, I suspect, just another Passover, even as the events of the week began to unfold and Jesus would be arrested and tried and there'd be a public clamor. It was, I'm sure, to most simply one more sad story of another provincial rabbi who'd come to town and overreached and gotten athwart the authorities and athwart Rome. They did not realize that all of human history turned on a hinge at this point. It is not without cause that we date history from the events before and after the incarnation of Jesus. And those who seek to take that piece out of it by referring to the common era and before the common era, it is still dated by the time of Jesus. History turned and nothing has ever been the same. In his trial before the high priest Caiaphas and the powers within Israel that had colluded with Rome and thus been able to enjoy continuing power. It was really not Jesus who was on trial, but religion. And in his trial before Pilate, it wasn't really Jesus on trial, but rather human government and power and human wisdom. As uh, Leslie Newbigin has written, God did not want his son simply buried beneath a pile of stones. And so it was not the charge of the religious, the charge of blasphemy for calling himself God's son that would bring him to his end. But it was rather that God would have his son lifted up for all to see. And for that, it had to be a charge of sedition. And the reason that Pilate was so frightened when he heard that Jesus had called himself the Son of God was not merely for the reason we might think that, oh, you know, what if he really is? It is because this was perhaps for Pilate an even more deadly act of sedition because Caesar, one of Caesar's titles was Son of God. From the death of Julius Caesar to all the Caesars that followed him, there arose a cult of Caesar once a year, as we've said many times. People under the thrall of Rome had to go up. They could worship whatever they wanted in any way they wanted as long as once a year they went up to one of the cult temples to Caesar and put a pinch of incense on the altar and said, Caesar is Lord. He was Son of God. He was Lord. He was Soter, Savior. 
He was all of the things that Jesus' followers attributed to him. And so Pilate, who's wrestling with how he can let Jesus go, now hears that he's taken yet another one of Caesar's prerogatives, son of God, for himself. And so we see Pilate going in and out, back and forth. Why? Because the Jewish authorities wouldn't go in to Pilate's presence. They didn't want to be ceremonially polluted at Passover season and therefore unable to celebrate Passover. So they're standing outside refusing to go in, not realizing that while they're trying to keep themselves pure for the celebration of Passover, they are seeking to sacrifice the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one to whom Isaiah the prophet had pointed one hundreds of years earlier. He said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace was on him, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. You know the passage. He's about to fulfill that, and all the world stands under the judgment of what we will do in that moment. With all the hustle and bustle, John describes seven times that Pilate goes in and out, talks to the leaders, goes back in and questions Jesus, goes back out and talks, comes back in. With all the charges, all the accusations, all the questions, there is in this picture one still point of peace. And it's Jesus, not moving, simply standing, not cowed, And we see him in this text ask one question and make three statements. And it is that question and those three statements that I want us to look at very quickly this morning because to the degree that we understand the question that he asked and the statements that he made, we will, I think, be able to enter this week with a deeper understanding of what this means for us. The question he asked of Pilate was in return to the question that Pilate asked, are you a king? Jesus often did this in his ministry. Often people would go to him with a question that they thought would trick him, and then he would say, I will ask you a question first, and if you can answer my question, then I'll answer yours. More often than not, they left without, because they realized his question was far trickier than theirs and was going to get them in a lot more trouble with the people than the question they'd intended on asking him. And so now this powerful Roman, Roman official walks in and says, are you a king? Expecting a man to be cowed, expecting an answer. And Jesus basically says to him, who wants to know? Are you asking this because it's your question or have other people put you up to this? You can imagine how startled. Pilate was not used to being talked to that way, especially by people under arrest with crowds outside crying out for them to be killed. I've never really noticed that question that Jesus asked until this week as I was reading the text, thinking about it. And it struck me how often I go in prayer often in complaint prayer (laughs) to the Lord, asking, why did this happen? Why is this going on? Why haven't you heard my cry in the night? Why is this person persisting in this destructive behavior? Why, why, why? 
And I think if I had ears to hear, more often than not, the Lord would say, who wants to know? What, what are you really asking? Did you just read something in a book that has troubled your heart? Are those your questions, John, or are those Sam Harris's questions? Are those your questions, or are they uh, this question that arose in a counseling session? Who wants to know who's asking? And it is fruitful, I think, for us to learn to ask ourselves that question. When questions arise and trouble us, to step back and say, what lies behind this question that I'm asking? What's really going on here? I don't want to be like a child just throwing up one question after another, and as soon as someone gives an answer, boom, the next one comes, trying to keep truth at bay. Let me step back and ask, what, what's really going on here? Why am I asking? It's a good thing for parents to ask of children, not obnoxiously. I mean, you know, they ask if they can go to the bathroom. You don't say, now, why are you asking? I mean, you know, I, but when they come with real questions, it's perhaps good for us to learn to say, I'd love to talk to you about that, but first kind of tell me how that, what was going on in your own heart when that question arose. Well, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the fruitfulness of asking the question that tries to reach underneath the question that seems to be on the surface. What's really going on? Why are you really asking this? Are you really seeking an answer to that, or is there something else that you're asking? Then Jesus makes three statements. Pilate comes back at him. Pilate's not cowed by the question, but he's obviously deeply irritated by it. And he says, am I the one who's calling for your death? Am I the one who's probably, I mean, good grief. Uh, this, this is about you. Let's talk about you. I want to know. And so Jesus says, statement one, my kingdom is not of this world. Often people simply interpret that, particularly people who are seeking to live within the truth and the teaching of the Scriptures, who are taking seriously the words of Jesus, so often interpret that as Jesus saying, my kingdom isn't for here and now, it's future. It's not of this world, it's out there in the future. And so there is on the part of many serious Christian people, tragically, the idea that everything here is going to just go from bad to worse and, and we just live our lives here and try to get as many people on the boat as we can because we're headed for eternity and that's when we'll see the kingdom. It's not what Jesus was saying. How do I know that? I know it because what he immediately said after. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, I would have been able to call on my followers to bear arms and fight against you and keep me from being arrested. In other words, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he goes on and says, my kingdom is not from this world, meaning this kingdom that I have come to bring, to show, is not won by human means. It is not advanced by force of arms. Brothers and sisters, simplest way that I can say this, we should all know it, is that one of the greatest tragedies of the last 2,000 years of Christian history is how often Christians in every time and place have forgotten that and sought to align themselves with the powers of government and advance the kingdom of God through 
bloody warfare, through oppression, through forced conversion, by threatening people perhaps with economic might or power, using what this world uses to build its kingdom in order to advance the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying, no, when in the garden they arrested him and Peter pulled out his sword and struck off poor Malchus's ear, Jesus said, put your sword away. The cup that the Father gives me to drink, shall I not drink it? And you and I need to understand that, as Paul said in Romans 13, as the Scriptures tell us in many places, the sword has been entrusted not to the church, but to the government. And God will hold governments accountable for how they use the sword to enforce justice. But it is never the church that is to appeal to the arms and seek to force its will. It has, for so many areas of ministry throughout the world, made the work of mission so hard. Just this past week, unrelated to this, in my own reading in various areas of history and various writers whom I read from time to time, I saw this as a theme over and over and over again within the Jewish community. Uh, Marvin Wilson, and I think it was in his book, Our Father Abraham, which I recommend to every one of you, tremendous book, said that one of the great tragedies is that the part of Christian history least known by Christians is the part of Christian history best known by Jewish people. And that is the history of anti-Semitism and persecution going all the way back to the early centuries once the church took power under Constantine and suddenly was no longer a countercultural group it used its power over and over again to oppress the very covenant people of God because they had not broadly, widely received Jesus as Messiah. Few Northern European people, few Americans, few English people realized that in just the 1600s, every Jewish person was kicked out of England. And those who fled to Spain were persecuted in Spain, as you know, under the Inquisition by the church. And those who fled up to the Russian Pale, seeking a place in the northern area, the wastelands outside of uh, the edges of Russia and the Ukraine and that area, like my wife's family, mother's family, she was born there, had to flee there because the Christian Cossacks acting for the Orthodox Church would ride in and slaughter them. We need to realize how we have hurt the cause of Christ by failing to understand what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. I was reading this past week the work of a a Vietnamese Buddhist who said, I find no more compelling person in all of history than Jesus if only his followers had not worked such destruction in my country. You look at Islam, and though they've got their bloody history as well, they have stories to tell of being on the receiving end of the cross on the the shield and the sword in hand. Gandhi, one of the most compelling figures of the 20th century, would say in so many of his works 
there is no more compelling figure, no more beautiful a picture in all of human history of what God intends humanity to be than Jesus Christ. And yet for those of us who have seen our countries oppressed and pillaged by Christians, it is hard for us to accept Christianity. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, it is not from this world, but it was always meant to be in this world. How do we know that? Because when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And when he prayed, your kingdom come and your will be done, he wasn't praying two different things. That's a feature of the Jewish language of Hebrew. It's parallelism. It's, I pray your kingdom come, the question, what does that mean? Your will be done on earth as in heaven, where God's will is done by God's people. There God's kingdom is present. There the king is ruling and reigning, and it is a kingdom of self-sacrificial love. So, kingdom in the world, but not of the world. Secondly, he spoke to the true nature, not only of his kingdom, but of his mission. He said, for this I came into the world, to witness to the truth, to bear testimony to the truth. And Pilate famously answered, what is truth? And yet Jesus, when we look at his entire ministry, did not leave a doctrinal statement. He did not say, these are the following things that you are to believe. He said, follow me, watch me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And because we're in God's image and likeness, we are to look to Him to say what we are to be. Who is God? You want to know who God is? I want to say this in all humility and acknowledging the place of confessions and creeds, but if I want to know who God is, I'm not going to go to the Westminster Confession. Why? Because I know the answer it gives. The question is, what is God? And the Confession of Faith says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. Well, that's comforting. Nowhere does it say that he is love. If I want to know who God is, I look at Jesus. I follow him around. I see how he touched the people that were untouchable to the culture around, how he preferred to have dinner with those whom the religious people had written off and said, you shouldn't be eating with those people. They're not good. If he were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. All the criticism. Why isn't he with us? We're the religious. We're the good people. And Jesus said, I've not come to call the well but the sick. I've not come for the righteous but for sinners. Thank God. Here I am, Jesus. Exhibit A. You came for me. And Jesus at the end of the day, just a few chapters earlier, chapter 14, said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The truth that he came to show was the truth of himself. We don't worship a creed but a Savior, a King who is willing to lay down himself for his people in self-sacrificial love.
That's the truth that those who know us should be able to see. Our neighbors, I'm sorry, but I'm old. I just need to say it. Our neighbors don't need us knocking on their doors to try to give them a a Christian sales pitch. Could I come in and share some things with you? And I know God has used that. Lines have been changed. Thank God. God can use anything. But what our neighbors need is to be well-loved by us who are their neighbors. And to love somebody well means to will and work for the good of the other as other, not in order to get them to my point of view, not in order to get them one day. It's to love them as who they are, to love them as Christ loved me while I was still his enemy. And maybe sometime, by God's providence, if I love them well, they will want to know, why are you different? Why do you love even those who hurt you? Why do you do good even to those who who oppress you? The third thing that Jesus said was to reveal the nature of his authority. This was the final. The nature of his kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world, so I don't resort to arms, but to love, self-sacrificial love. My mission in coming is to testify to truth, and if you would know that truth, I am the truth and the life. And then the question of authority. Pilate was exasperated. I'm sure in his mind, this was not a guy who was reluctant to crucify people. What we know of Pilate's history, this was a guy who crucified people to the walls of Jerusalem when they were guilty of sedition. But he was obviously a guy who wasn't sure that Jesus was really guilty of sedition and and sort of saw through some of it. And so here, he, from his perspective, I'm sure he's thinking, I'm trying to help this guy and this guy's just given me trouble. And so he finally says, don't you get it? Don't you realize that I have authority over you, authority to release you, or authority to turn you over and put you to death? And Jesus says, you would have no authority if it were not given you from above. And that is the nature of authority. It's something our world has forgotten. It's the reason that so many nations and so many communities and families are marked by illegitimate authority and nothing but rebellion from below. In order for authority to be legitimate, it must be derived from above. Our founders saw that. Our president's authority, such as it is, arises from the consent of the governed and in keeping with a constitution which itself acknowledges that all these rights are given to us by nature's God that we are people under authority, and therefore this is what has been revealed, that all people are created equal, etc. And so this is how we should live. This is how we should treat one another. It's derived authority. And we've talked about that before at some length during the mission conference, so I won't do any more than remind you. It's astonishing that Jesus, after his resurrection, as he commissions his disciples in the final verses of Matthew's gospel, says, all authority in heaven on earth has been what? Given to me. 
we would expect him to say, now that you know who I am, you realize that all authority is mine by right. No, no. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Therefore, I now give you your commission. You go out in the authority that I give you, authority that I have gotten from my Father. Pilate misused the authority entrusted to him, authority that the Bible says is to be used to punish the guilty and vindicate the oppressed and those falsely charged. Instead, he used it to keep his job, to do the safest thing, to keep there from being any more of a riot, to keep Rome from getting any word that there was a person who had claimed to be son of God and king, and Pilate let him go. And as a result, his name will live forever in infamy as one who abused the proper power of state. The Jewish authorities, the Sadducees, abused their power the moment that they sought to use the power of the Roman state to accomplish their ends, refusing their own responsibility, which would have been to go ahead and stone him to death, but they weren't willing to take that on themselves. And so they were willing to stand before Pilate and say what they knew to be a lie. We have no king but Caesar. When they knew that Israel had but one true king, Yahweh, the covenant Lord. And so within a few years, their whole way of worship and the source of their power would disappear as the temple was wiped off the temple mount forever. And the Sadducees disappear from history. And Rome, the greatest nation the world had yet known, began at this time to unravel as the gods of Rome were shown to be false, particularly the Caesar cult. And we have the likes of Nero and others like him increasingly showing the madness of this kind of unbridled power as the church grows from underneath not for one moment seeking the power of arms, but rather the power of love. And the Roman procurators write back to Rome, as Pliny did in his famous letters back to Rome, saying, what do I do with these followers of Christ? We can't kill enough of them. They are not breaking laws except that they will not put a pinch of incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. We kill them, and it just makes them stronger. What are we to do with them? They talk about them and say, this group loves their own people, and, and these people love their own people, but these Christians love everybody, even their enemies. What can you do with people who love in such a profligate way? And the world was turned upside down until Constantine came along, and the church decided it needed massive buildings and power and became part of this world's power. And the fact that the power of God is greater than anything we can marshal has never in our day been seen more remarkably, and I'll end with this, than in the story of the Chinese church. When I was a boy in the 1950s, I would hear my parents and other Christians say what a tragedy had occurred in the late 40s when Mao and the communists took over. And now they said that church that was showing such great promise 
headed under, you know, wonderful people like Watchman Nee and others, had now been crushed and annihilated. The pastors in the cities arrested. And the church was over. It was done, they thought. And then, in the late 80s, as China began to open, they discovered that the church had grown faster in China under oppression, powerless except for the power of God than it had ever grown anywhere else in all of human history. What might God need to bring to us in order for us once again to become people who say the kingdom of which we are citizens is not of this world or from this world, but is in this world, the salt and light. And our weapon is self-sacrificial love. Our authority is derived from the one who loved us and gave himself for us.